This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the very special Sunday morning mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips from the Motley Fool. He is the man who's just finished a 100 kilometer beaches walk all the way from Bondi to Manly and then swam Parramatta River back home to his house. He is, of course, <laughs> Andrew Page. How are you, mate? Very good. I am a big walker, actually. It's normal Sunday morning for you, isn't it? I, I really do like a good walk. I'm, I'm at that age where jogging is just really not <laughs> viable. But, but yeah, I like a good walk. I, I like don't know about a 100, 100K walk, but, I, you know, yeah. how, I like how, to get my 10,000 steps in, put it that way. How do you reckon your younger self would have thought about you saying, I enjoy a good walk? We oh, have arrived at I, that particular. Yeah, time I think my life, younger self just never imagined ever getting old. Yeah, to be honest, exactly. <laughs> I had a uh, speaking, speaking of old, I had someone in our team. Uh, I'm just trying to find the Slack message. Here we go. He said, "Yeah, have you done the thumbs up thing? Have you seen the thumbs up stuff that's been going around?" Well, you like can't the re- emoji. You can't reply to an emoji with a thumbs up because apparently it's dismissive or rude or something these days. I do that all the time. Me too. But apparently, young people think it's dismissive because, like, yeah, whatever, just thumbs like almost dismissive kind of, you know, stuff what? you. Th- I know, right? So I missed thing. that memo. I, it's I a thought, thing. I thought thumbs up was. Right? I agree. Right. Nice one. Right. Except apparently that's dismissive because it doesn't take any time and effort. And oh, anyway, goodness. so I. What, shared, what am I meant to use? <laughs> I don't know. So I shared that with the team, and one of my colleagues said, "Quote: I do thumbs up, and I don't care. Gen Zs don't scare us millennials." As if being millennial is old, and it was you know there's a bit of a backhanded you know you know I yeah I, I'm old I'm a millennial imagine being older than that I'm I'm sure he was having a dig at me so I, I just said just just remember I I noticed that you threw some shade at us Gen Xs by pretending that millennials were old and Gen Z the young kids like no no you're all still young thank you very much oh dear millennials are getting old too though but I by the time comes us. for all of us yeah. it does doesn't it so anyway mm-hmm. you're like a good walk mm-hmm. uh, I'm glad you got it out of the way though before the podcast mate I appreciate you you turning up um, of course it's it's an important thing to do. Uh, yes, it's, it's important. I, I'm I'm appreciative of that. Um, but speaking of age, I, I'm finding it hard to remember things these days, and, and oh, I have yeah. I have I have a suspicion that I may have previously asked you what strawman.com is, and I I I racked my brain. I couldn't quite come up with the answer. I thought just in case I've forgotten mm-hmm. to ask in the past, mm-hmm. uh, I, I hoped you might share with our listeners, and maybe with me. Just I've, I might have try and write this one down. Um, just so I remember next time. What what is what is strawman.com? Well, you might. I don't know if you've seen Memento, which is an excellent movie. I have not. By the actually. way, you haven't seen Memento. No. no. Oh, okay. That's your weekend, right? Like, right, okay. Yes. Okay. Strong recommend. Memento. Right, Very good, good movie. Okay. Well, so this reference is going to fall, fall flat, but <laughs> but he has short-term memory issues as well, and he he, he tattooed it on himself. So this might be wow, something you okay. want to tattoo on the arm. Um, it, it ready? It's a it's a private online private investment club. Online investment. <laughs> That could, that could work. That could work. That being said, I, I'm, I'm scared of tattoos. I've seen the most recent one I saw was someone who had Metallica tattooed on their arm, but the, uh, the tattooist got the T's and the L's wrong way. So it was actually uh, tattooed as Melatica, which oh, no. uh, is a long time to have the uh, a misspelled. No, it, the logo, you know, the logo with the little pointed M and A at the ends and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure I want to tattoo. I'd probably end up tattooing something else other than Private Online Investment Club, and I'd be in all sorts of trouble. Oh, dude. Like well, was. anyway. Watch Memento. Uh, brilliant movie. It's like 20 years old or something now. Christopher Nolan. Um, okay, check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good. Really, really good. Very good. Mate, um, should we ask some member questions of ourselves, listener questions of ourselves? Yeah, let's do that. All right. Let's start with one from Anonymous. 
Now, I appreciate that Anonymous has written the word Anonymous both at the top and the bottom of the email, just to make sure I don't accidentally screw it up and mention his or her name. So thank you, Anonymous, for your question. First of all, says Anonymous, I believe all schools should have a weekly class dedicated to your podcast. Keep up the good work. I completely agree, Anonymous. I'm happy to uh, speak to the heads of curriculum, the ministers for education around the country, have this podcast. We may have to clean it up a little bit, maybe uh, get rid of some of the older references because, frankly, the kids aren't going to really get any of these references. <laughs> um, what's what's after Gen Z? What are the, what are the new ones called? Oh, I had this conversation called? just the other day. Something stupid. If you can't um, remember, that's, again, sign of our age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. We ran, out of, we ran out of uh, letters in the alphabet. Um, I've gone blank. Anyway, something it's dumb. Pretty uh, lack of foresight there. We're always going to run out of letters. Yes. Surely if they started A rather than X, it would have made a whole lot more sense. <laughs> or just one, two, three. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, I'm a 35-year-old saving for early retirement with my girlfriend, says our anonymous questioner. Listener. We have calculated our required spending adjusted for a 5% inflation per year. Okay, good. We assume our NASDAQ ETF can deliver 6% annual average return. This return combined with our monthly contributions should allow us to retire in around 15 years. Our super will then hopefully kick in at the age of 60. This is some good work they're doing. I'm confident in my math. However, I'm concerned about the average annual return for the next 15 years and whether 6% leaves me with a margin of safety. My question, what is your best guess for the annual average return for a broad-based ETF for the next 15 years? Also, are there any other potential pitfalls I may have overlooked, such as change in the super withdrawal age? Any general advice would be appreciated. P.S. I recommend reading Die With Zero by Bill Perkins. He explains the importance of spending money on experiences while you're young, which pay, quote, future memory dividends, end quote, instead of oversaving for when you're older. That's from good advice. Anonymous. It is yeah, very like good that. advice. Um, yeah. It's the, it's the opposite of what you'd say you'd see uh, on a finance podcast. So it's like, no, 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 yeah. you should save, you should save. But I think right. there's a middle ground. There yeah. is, there is. Good, uh, good recommendation. Thank you for that. Ram, um, 6% per year, 15 years, broad-based ETF. Too high, too low, about right? Um, wait a second. I just want to back up a little bit here. Um, 35 now, yep. 35 plus 15. Yes. It's 50, right? Yes. Was... was Listeners saying they wanted to retire at 60? Uh, so they are believing they can, I think the sounds like they're saying retire at 50, live ah. on their proceeds for the first oh. 10 years. Oh, I'm with you. And then yes. at 60, yes. their super becomes available to them, which gives them another income stream at that okay. point. Okay, good. good. Point. So I think yep. they're trying okay. to gap, just bridge the gap between 50 and, and their preservation age for super. Excellent. Um, people are having kids older these days. Yeah. Um, I know our generation did, you and I, yes, kids yeah. of a similar age. It's just sort of a general demographic trend. I don't know if you factored that into your calculations, but there's no way you're retiring in 15 years if you decide to have kids. Maybe maybe you're both on incredible salaries, but I just, yeah, you know, don't yep. don't not have kids. It's the best thing you'll ever do. That's but, true. you know, don't, if, if you know. I'm just that. saying. Yeah. I'm just saying. If that hasn't been factored into the calculation, you want to. Yep. You know, they're yep. bloody expensive. Um, so there's that. Um, the look. So, so no one knows. No one can possibly know. We could get some of the world's greatest economists, yeah. macro forecasters out here. And and the thing is, and I I I track a lot of this stuff just for morbid curiosity because <laughs> it's interesting, right? 
not so much what the specific forecast is, but the reasoning. Mm. And I often come across, not often, all the time, you know, incredibly intelligent, articulate, well-reasoned arguments that are wrong mm. or are that are, are that at complete odds with another well-reasoned, articulate, thoughtful, mm. well-credentialed kind of <laughs> argument. <laughs> so it's really, really hard. I've always tried to, when, when taking a long enough approach, and I know this, is, this has got flaws as well, but I think it's not too unreasonable just to extrapolate the past. Yep. And you and I have often said, look, I don't know, but when you look over any meaningful time frame, <laughs> share markets with all everything reinvested, you know, you get you get pretty close to ten percent. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's eight, maybe it's nine, maybe it's twelve, but somewhere it's somewhere around that kind of figure. Yeah. Um, so that's that's might be wrong, but it's not it's not um, not a reckless, I think, forecast. I've said to you before on this very pod that I feel as though the next decade will be a little bit below the average, mm. um, if anything. And that, and I say that in full awareness, self-awareness of, of, <laughs> of, of, of you know, the, the, the value of that forecast is, is exactly what you paid for it, which is yep. zero. Because yep. um, <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll probably be wrong. And for, for reasons that I can't even comprehend at this or imagine at this, at this point in time. Yep. Um, uh, but, but my reasoning on that is that we, we had – I think a lot of the gains that were driven in the market in recent decades, frankly, um, have been a consequence of pretty loose monetary policy. And it feels as though in an age of inflation, the listener themselves has forecast 5% annual inflation over a five-year period, a 15-year period. Mm. And and actually, that's probably not that that crazy, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so that suggests a higher inflation, a higher, in, well, higher cost of money world. Mm. And that's going to make gains, I think, in the, the corporate sector a, a little bit harder. And I, yeah, I just don't, I don't think the gains are going to be as easy as they have been in the past. Usually what happens after periods of excess, we saw this in the 70s, um, or we didn't, because I was, I was still running around in nappies then. But, but <laughs> um, according to the history books, uh, and just for the record, it was only the back half of the seventies as well. Before you think I'm that old, um, but <laughs> but uh, but but that was a that was a lost decade, quote unquote, um, because of some of the exuberance that had, that had gone before that. So, but that's a guess. I don't know. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't invest on on that that basis. I do think that one thing you you can't be accused of is being too optimistic. Five percent inflation for fifteen years annual. <laughs> And six percent total return is is pretty bearish, mm. frankly. Mm. But that's cool. I actually like bearish forecasts because it kind of if you can make it make sense with inflation that's that yeah. not just high, but you know you might have a year or two or three that's that high, but sustained over such a long period, and um, and and have like you know almost half long term historical returns for the market, and still make the maths work out. If you're wrong, it's probably more likely that you're wrong on the downside in the sense that you were you were too conservative, in which case you'll have more money at 50 than you plan to have, in which case you've never been happier to be wrong in your life, which is, which is far more sensible than the person who says, well, I'm going to assume 2% inflation for 15 years, and I'm going to assume that I can get a 15% compound return over that period. Well, maybe you can, 
Uh, maybe that proves to be the case. But again, the risk here is, is in the other direction, which is that maybe you're optimistic and when 50 rocks around, it, you're just miles away from your target because you were relying on very ambitious targets, mm. very, very ambitious goals. So I think, I'm, I'm kind of blathering here, but I, I, I think you, we, we could debate it all day long as to what numbers are the best ones to use. But I think erring on the side of conservatism, adding a margin of safety, so to speak, it's a pretty good way of going about it. I think so too, mate. I think um, I can't add much more to what you've done. I the other thing is, I guess <clears throat> even if you are wrong, so if you think from, I guess you think in reverse. It, let's say you are wrong and you are wrong, and you're actually not being conservative enough. I think it's very unlikely to your point, Ram. I think it's a 15 year period, not getting uh, only six percent per annum over 15 years would be remarkably low. I don't. You, you made the point about the 70s. I don't think it's. I don't think it's easy to claim we're at particularly exuberant times now share price-wise. I think you're right. There's going to be pressure on share prices from rising interest rates and potentially higher inflation than we used to. But I don't think we're starting from a particularly exuberant position in most cases. So This is true. Going back a couple of years, I think that was that period of exuberance was more pronounced. Yes, particularly in some, in some uh, sectors and some stocks, tech in particular. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think we are... I think it's a, it's a it's a conservative, as you say, um, uh, perspective. I, I don't think it's. I, I'm not going to. I don't wanna pick an argument for the fun. I think bearish would suggest a decline or something really awful. But I think I think it's a particularly conservative approach. Why I was saying talking about inverting it though is to say, let's say you get the 50, you haven't got quite enough. You're going to wait an extra year. That's probably not going to kill you. If, if it's early retirement rather than I desperately need it by 50 because I'm going to do X with the money and it's got to be that year, uh, then you know it's a different thing. But to your point. If you're probably going to be pleasantly surprised using those assumptions, mm. and if you're if you're unpleasantly surprised, you might add a year or two to your retirement plans and you try fifty two rather than fifty, which will suck for a couple of years, but is also not a particularly disastrous right. outcome. So I think right. if you've worked out that scenario, I, I would I'm with you, mate. I think they're going to find that they've been too conservative, uh, but if they find they're not conservative enough, you've got plenty of time left. It's not like you have to sell everything to buy a house at, at 50 or, you know, you can't work past 50 because of some, I don't know what mandate you would have or some some rule that would stop you working. So uh, I think I think that's a perfectly good one. The only thing I would probably add is the question was, best guess average annual return for a broad-based ETF. Mm. The question suggests they are investing in a NASDAQ ETF. Now, I just want to make the point that the NASDAQ ETF is not broad-based in any, in any meaningful way mm -hmm. in the sense that it's effectively... It's not one industry. Tech isn't an industry. It's everything from server parts to online commerce to social media to streaming. So it's not exactly one yeah. uh, one sector. But you will find the sentiment we just talked about tech and exuberance before. I would suspect the Nasdaq ETF is more volatile than, for example, an S and P five hundred ETF or a global ETF. So mm. it, it's it's broader than buying individual stocks for sure. Uh, I own it. I like the Nasdaq ETF. But it's not broad-based in the way that an S&P 500 or an ASX 200 or a, a global MSCI-based ETF would be. Um, so they're kind of slightly different questions. You, you gave an example of one ETF and asked about broad-based. I think it's worth just bringing us back to that comparison. There are other ETFs will be less volatile uh, and more, in my view, and more likely to give you the average return over a shorter period. NASDAQ ETF, I assume, over the next 15 years will have highs and lows that exceed that of those other, ETF, other, other indices. Yeah, I mean, if I was, this has come up before as a previous question. Again, this is just thumb suck. Yeah, totally. you know, staring at the clouds and <laughs> yes, and yes. daydreaming because yeah. I, so I, I I fully recognize that. But my my gut would say that 
if I was to be more narrow or mm. less broad, mm. the Nasdaq's where I'd want to be. Oh, I, 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 that's yeah. That's but but I think I'm not saying I wouldn't invest it. Because I own it, but in year fourteen or fifteen, it's not possible. Nasdaq falls thirty percent. Yeah. So so you know at, yeah. at fifty, that's what I mean about the fifty years. Fifteen years worth of stuff it doesn't mean the overall index can't fall by the same amount. But given it's likely more volatile over that period, the end yeah. year matters. The year you start, the year you finish are arbitrary dates and points in time. Uh, yeah. If you'd have if you'd have wanted to retire in in March 2020 after the market had fallen 38 percent. But I thought index ETF it was a great idea. I thought, you know, now if you wait another year after that, you're completely sweet. Yeah. Uh, just, just be mindful if you're investing in just, I think you're right, mate. I think NASDAQ will outperform the ASX 200 over that period for what it's worth. Um, partly why I own it, uh, partly just for, for diversification. But I also think just, just be mindful that because of that volatility, the exit date, i.e. the 15th year, might be a great year or a terrible year or somewhere in between. But on the NASDAQ ETF, it's likely to be more, you've got a greater chance, I suppose, of a, of a volatile outcome in year 15 than if you bought something else. I'll make another bold statement, well, maybe not too bold, is <laughs> I don't know what the biggest, most best profitable company in the world will be in mm -hmm. 15 years' time. Yep. But I reckon there's pretty good odds it'll be in the NASDAQ. Yeah, I think that's right too. I think that's right too. Um, and it might be something no one's ever heard of yet. Right, like it's the, the world is changing <laughs> so rapid. It might be a humanoid robot company or a yep. spin-off of Tesla. You know, you never, you never know what it's thing. going to be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It, and so, but but it's it's the natural home for that kind of um, company, yep. and I feel that that's the most exciting. That's where the most development is happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything in, you know, those on the bleeding edge. It's it's all AI. It's all robotics. It's all. Pure tech, 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 tech focused tech. <laughs> That's that that seems to be very much the future. That could that could be wrong. Maybe maybe the biggest company in the world produces washers and fasteners. I don't know, but I suspect it's probably going to be something that is that is um, very very uh, high tech. Yep. Um, the the other thing I would say is, and I this is mentioned this several times on the pod, but my other you know staring at the sky um, uh, thought is that I don't I think the um, the age that you can draw on your super will be very much extended. I don't think you'll be able to touch it when you're 60. Mm. You can't touch it when you're 60 now, right? Yeah, you can. Oh, can you? Yeah, preservation okay. age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. I thought it was moved up to… I think it was moved from 55 to 60 oh. from memory. Oh, is that just the amount that you can draw down in terms of… Oh, gosh. Okay, I'm well out of… Anyway. I'm looking up that, right now. Super… Yeah, uh, so it went from 55 to 60 uh, and that was done… Uh, 2015 is a while ago, actually. Yeah. So, okay. um, uh, if you're, I can just born, take out all my super at the age of 60. Depending, on, yeah. So when you, uh, the yes, depending on when you were born. Uh, oh. If you were born before 1960, the preservation age is 55. If you're born after 1964, it ratchets up by year. Now it's uh -huh. now 60. So yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Anyway, I reckon it's going up. It's going yes. up. It's going up. Like, uh, lifespans are increasing. There's still that requirement. You know. Government can't fund people for 30 years in That's their retirement. Right. Yeah. It's just a massive honeypot that no government, I don't care what their ideologies, will be able to resist. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be tapped. I mean, we've already seen it. We've seen hints of it. You know, ScoMo mm -hmm. let people buy houses and tap into it. It's already TVs, happening. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, so, so not, not that I would, I would, I would base my entire investment mm -hmm. philosophy on it, but I would be cautious of assuming. Yeah. That I can get it. I I I I wouldn't plan it such that I spend yes. my last dollar, uh, on fifty nine years and eleven months. You know, I mean, again, by the time you're fifty, you've only got to wait that ten years. You're, they're less likely to 
pull the rug out from under you at that point. But when you're 35, mm -hmm. looking ahead 25 years, hoping for super yeah. at that point, that's probably a, a dicier assumption to make. Yeah. And just, and, and I know the listener has done the maths and is confident in the maths. So I, I won't, I, I'm sure that they know this, but just, just to remember here that that 6% return is a 1% real return in a 5% inflationary environment. That is, yes. that in other words, any genuine wealth you build will almost entirely just be a function of what you mm -hmm. save, mm -hmm. not what return you get. Any return you get is largely just offsetting the in inflation. A little bit, you know, 1% compound over 15 years is something, yeah. but, but not, not a lot. Um, so you bear that in mind too. Good point. Hey, mate, here's a question from Christian who says, Hi, gents. Love the show. I'm a huge fan and do not miss an episode. So you're huge fans. Have you been to a Bunnings lately? No. Have you seen the size of the fans on their ceilings? No. They are enormous. Go to a Bunnings, like a proper Bunnings shed. The fans, they're actually called something, something fans. You look at they they're huge. These bloody big, you know, kind of airplane rotor type fans. Amazing. Anyway, oh, huge fan of not missing episodes, this Christian. Thank you for taking the time out to do this pod for all of your listeners. Our pleasure. My question is around substantial shareholders in companies. For example, when I look up Brickworks, there are substantial shareholders such as Solpats and Argo Investments, which I understand are listed investment companies. They're also individuals and what I assume are self-managed super funds. But what or who are the likes of HSBC custody nominees or Citicorp mm. nominees? Mm. There are a few of these same names that are always up the top of a lot of the companies when I'm researching. How much sway do they have in terms of voting rights? Lastly, I do not purchase companies based on their top shareholders. However, it does help me sleep better at night knowing a company like Sol Pats is potentially thinking along the same lines as me. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Christian. What is a substantial yeah. shareholder, Ram? And what is a nominee? Uh, so if you own more than 5% of a company's shares, you're considered substantial. Mm -hmm. And there are certain reporting obligations. So you have to inform the market or the company has to inform on your behalf whenever you buy or sell as a substantial shareholder. Yep. Um, uh, th those, th those names and entities that you mention uh, are acting not directly as investors, but as custodians for other investors. Mm. And so that's, so who's the, who's the, who's the real holder? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> you might, you might know more about it than me to elaborate on, on that, but I don't believe, I believe it is just a custodian yes. function that, that is there. Yep. They have the voting rights at being the entity that is sort of, uh, listed as the shareholder, but I don't think they tend to leverage that voting power. I, but I don't know. I'm a little bit out of my depth, mate. You, you might know more than me. Look, so yeah, you've done a great job of summarizing it. Um, basically, institutional shareholders uh, don't often want to deal with um, even, even substantial um, Small share, oh, substantial wrong word. I shouldn't use that word given the context of the question. There's smaller shareholders who have who just simply don't want to deal with the paperwork themselves, put their trades through a nominee company. It's basically just a, a, a legal structure that allows life to be a whole lot easier for everybody. Uh, the nominee companies are required to um, uh, are required to meet certain rules, follow certain certain procedures. Um, I'll read. I'll read something. This is from. Um, uh, I can't actually find the source, mate. So I'm going to read this unquoted. Uh, so my apologies from the online. A nominee shareholder is a person who holds shares in his or her own name on behalf of another person, the beneficiary, who has the effective ownership and control of the shares. Thus, the nominee is owner in name only. He is okay. the registered legal owner holding the shares on trust for the beneficiary, 
who has what they call an equitable interest. A nominee may be an individual partnership or company, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but basically, that's that's the structure. So uh, it is, it's not a big deal. I don't think you should worry about it. I would say for what it's worth, it's probably not the most transparent thing to have. Was, and I'm that not was sure. just about to say, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure it's great for, I think I think just transparency is important. And I think disclosure is important. I think, um, I think anything that, that, improves transparency is great and it reduces transparency probably not great i don't love the fact we have nominee companies that are holding between them sometimes you know 15 20 25 percent of a company now it's on behalf of so many individuals probably not a big deal but not knowing who those people are given that size of that shareholding is probably not great yeah uh, so I, I will i will make that we'll make that point um but for all intents and purposes don't think of them as a single entity in anything other than legal name, as that description says. It's not an issue. Um, it'd be nice to know who they were holding on behalf of, who they were yeah. the nominees of, uh, but they don't control any, anything meaningfully. They don't influence as nominees uh, the company or voting structures, generally speaking. The, the owner of the shares can appoint the nominee a proxy to vote on their behalf, so they mm -hmm. could do so if they chose to, yeah. um, but that's that's largely the, the process. Um, it's a really good question, mate. Uh, we had the then shadow finance minister, Andrew Lee, get this horribly, horribly wrong in the newspaper a few years ago. He wrote about the fact that 75% of you know, shares were owned by these four companies, these former nominee companies, uh, and it was, it was a yeah. massive, massive own goal. Um, really screwed that one up. But yes, not, not a big deal. No need to worry about it. Don't, don't think any more about it. As I said, in a perfect world, I would probably say dominators should disclose their owners because it just makes things more transparent. You can imagine that you know, if you owned... 4.9% of a company through a nominee, you know, we wouldn't know who that person was. Um, I think it, was, it would be better if they didn't use that as a shield for secrecy or, or, or other reasons. It wouldn't be hard for the nominee these days in a computerized world to disclose who those owners were. The owners themselves may not like it, which is probably a reason to do it. Uh, but yeah, nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing meaningful to worry about. Um, yeah. The kind of expand on that thought. What you'll mm. sometimes, well, actually, you'll often see is, and so it's different. So there's substantial shareholders and requirements that are there, but there are also requirements around director interests and these kinds of things as well. So often you'll see that, you know, uh, Scott Phillips is the beneficial owner of 13.3% of the company. You think, okay, great. It's almost always the last few pages of the annual report it shows you the top 20 list or whatever. And you think, well, I don't see their name. I don't see anyone holding 13%. Mm -hmm. It's, it's it's the beneficial ownership. So it might be almost always is held through a trust yep. structure or, or a, a PTY, yeah. Yep, yeah. LTD kind of thing. And, it may, and, and in many cases, several of them combined. So he's like, not only can I not see that director's name or the CEO's name, but I can't see any entity that owns the amount that has been said. It's because it's split across, you know, a, a bunch of different different legal entities. So that's something worth digging into a little bit more as as well. Again, companies will disclose exactly what the senior executives and, and directors and that own. But if ever you're trying to sort of match things up and you can't match it up, that's that's what's going on there. Yeah, not perfect. Um, I, I agree. It's nice to know when uh, companies that I like also have a similar interest in the companies that I follow. So I'm, I'm with you there in terms of the, uh, the benefit of knowing who's only what and, and potentially, you know, how they're thinking. Um, there can be a bit of um, a bit of bias there, which maybe isn't super helpful. In other words, they won't always be right about those holdings either. Uh, like anything, uh, my track record of the Motley Fool is pretty good, but I've made some clangers. Uh, don't don't choose one company I own and say, "Well, Scott owns it, must be good." Um, Scott owns it, so he hopes it's good, but it doesn't make me necessarily right. So that's the only other thing I just add is 
Um, if you've done your own research and it happens to be the same, well, that's probably nice. And a, it's, a, it's a green flag, not a red or a yellow flag. Just be careful you don't, don't uh, assume like anything. Gee, Buffett bought that boot business. It must be great. Goes broke six months later. It's like, uh, maybe, you know, there's, there's reasons to, to, to go with and not go with that sort of stuff. Just as always, be diversified and make sure you remember they can make mistakes as well. Well, and also too, you don't know, you might know at the last um, disclosure what the position was. Yes, that's also true. But yeah. it's not reported minute by minute, right? Like they, things can change. Um, Stanley Druckenmiller is an investor I really like. And he's an incredible track record, but he's famous for changing his mind. Right. And so you can, you can you catch an interview and he's like, oh, he's really bullish on X, Y, Z. And then you think, oh, okay, that's really interesting. And the next time he's talking about, oh, no, I sold that. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm right. out of that. That was a disaster. No, yeah. or not even, no, I changed my mind yeah. completely that afternoon. And 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 that's that's... I mean, I actually think that's a strength of a really great intellect, actually, yep. the capacity and ability to change one's mind when the facts change or your interpretation of the facts change. 100%. And 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 you can be you can be led astray if you if you just assume that the reason they're holding that are for the same reasons that you hold that, and in fact that they still hold that. Because by the time the next time it's updated, and I don't think it's updated all that often. Um, uh, yeah, things things can change. So 100%. just beware. Mate, here's a, here's a great cut, set of comments and questions from Andy, including his sign-off, which I will get to. So, uh, so wait for that okay. one. Uh, okay. He says, Hi, Scott and Andrew. In the last podcast episode, which might have been a couple ago, you commented on the inflationary effects of infrastructure investment and population growth. I respectfully disagree, says Andy. And it would seem to me that we should be utilizing this as a way to grow our economy organically outside of artificially increasing house prices in the major cities. In Australia... We have house affordability. We just focus on the wrong area. I believe we should begin to accept that home ownership in the major cities is unattainable for the growing majority of people. Instead of having government tailor policies that, quote, address the housing affordability in Sydney, end quote, just let it go. There is more to Australia than the inner west of Sydney. I think he's talking to you, mate. If you can't <laughs> afford to own a property in a major city, says Andy, so be it. Sounds harsh. There are people who have to live and work there However, I believe the government should instead be focused on developing regional centres with the infrastructure they need to adequately house, support and care for the people who cannot afford property in the major cities and therefore drive regional growth. I'm going to probably butcher this. I was born in, is it, you are born up this way, mate. Is it uh, Corindai? Q-U-I-R-I. Corindai, yep. yep, beautiful. There we go. I was born in Corindai, says Andy, uh, a small town near Tamworth and I yep. currently live and work in Wagga Wagga. I also grew up in Maroubra in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. I know city living and I know regional living. If you invest in these regional areas, Bathurst, Orange, Broken Hill, Wagga, Tamworth, etc., the desirable aspects of the city will develop organically in these areas, such as cafes, shops, bars, culture, etc. Developing a strong and robust local healthcare system, sewage and race management, schooling and roads will take the heat out of the Sydney property market, but will be offset by infrastructure spending and growth for a new demographic of people. Tourism growth will help supplement the government investment as more people will be happy to visit Outback Australia. We've formed a strong national identity around Outback Australia and it's time we used it, says Andy. Want to see a kangaroo? Come and see hundreds in the wild, as well as sheep, cows, cotton, wheat, and the best sunsets you will ever see. I fully believe this will lead to an overall improvement in the healthcare system as well, due to the fact people actually want to go to these areas to live and work. The current issue being that people are sent to these smaller, under-resourced rural areas and don't want to stay. Why would you? These are some thoughts I have had recently, and it seems ironic you discussed it on the latest pod episode. Feel free to discuss. Andy. And then he signs off by saying, uh, as, as a, as a uh, description, lover of economic stability. At least I like the idea of it. I'm 28, so I wouldn't know. 
<laughs> which I which I really appreciate. Thank you, Andy. That's some really really great thoughts there. Um, mate, yeah. I'm just going to I'm going to just throw it open and say, uh, what do you reckon? I think I agree. Yeah, you're way too much focus on the cities. I mean, mm. the the Australian psyche is we love to sort of see ourselves with the Akuba and the Dreiser bone, and they're like, <laughs> it's like what two percent of us yeah, yeah. have any you know um, direct recognition of that or experience yeah, yeah. of that. Yeah. The rest of us are city dwellers. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I think Australia looks at looks at. I mean, the world looks at Australia and thinks of Paul Hogan and Steve Irwin, and it's no, we're all latte sipping in a city types. That's what we. Are. <laughs> you know? um, the country's beautiful. I, I, I think, yeah, I, I strong agree that mm. there is. I mean, look at look at Canberra. We built that from nothing. Yes. Now it's right. one of the most desirable places to live with one of the highest mm-hmm. average incomes. Great infrastructure. Now it's a bit different because, like, the government just basically moved all of its its <laughs> operations yeah. there. That, yeah. that that really helps a lot when you've got that kind of funding available, that kind of spending that that's sort of going there. But it can be done. Mm. Um, so yeah, so so I think we made the comment. I'm trying to remember what we said in response to infrastructure spending, but, but I think my point was. Um, it depends on what you spend it on. Infrastructure yeah. investment done well is is deflationary. Uh, infrastructure spending done well is is a boost to economic growth and prosperity. Mm. It's only done when it's sort of diverting resources, very scarce and precious capital away from far more productive uses, which is which I think is a fair charge to be made against a lot of the government sort of spending. So when it's sort of mm. dumb, reckless vote buying infrastructure spending you know putting solar panels on a gun club that doesn't need it you know that that is that is just stupid and it mm-hmm. makes it's just, we should all be up in arms about that kind of stuff regardless of which party is sort of doing it but yeah if it is going to to um uh, uh alleviate all the things that andy was sort of talking about help foster uh, development and entrepreneurship and business growth in, in these other areas, then yeah, I'm all for it. Absolutely. Mm. I think we, I think, yeah, I, I think there's some really good points made, Andy. I agree with you entirely. And Andy, I agree with you almost entirely, but I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to pick a couple of uh, arguments to have with you just, just for the sake of adding to the conversation. Um, I don't, I don't have a problem with your solution or, or, or the other suggestions. I think I would, I would, I think if we decide to say, hey, let's not worry about house prices in Sydney or Melbourne or, or Brisbane, um, that therefore it's going to be permanently unaffordable, I think that would be an abrogation of policy responsibility by governments. I, I, don't, I don't think that making uh, our three largest or three of our largest cities unaffordable for whole swathes of people suggests we've got the policy settings right. I don't think that's a society we should be happy with or proud of or comfortable with. Which is not to say again your your solutions or, or the upsides of what you're suggesting aren't right, but I don't think we I don't think it's well. I would like to think our our policymakers and oh, I'd love to say politicians, but I'm being realistic here um, should should want to say actually let's write the whole thing off. It's, it's dead. It's done. We can't possibly do anything about fixing. It. I think we should fix those problems as well as do the things some of the things you're talking about. So I think I think that's I think that's you know I, I don't I don't think we should write off investing and living in the city. I don't live in a city now. I live in Barrow, which is not exactly rural, but it's regional. Uh, I moved out for for reasons similar to your thoughts, and I would have moved further had my uh, beautiful lady wife decided she'd be happy with that. Uh, I, I, we went as far as I was allowed to, uh, but uh, 
Yeah, so you know, I, I don't, I don't think we should ignore house price affordability because it does it's underpinned by some real significant policy problems that we should fix, in my view. That said, uh, I love Tamworth, I love Wagga, I love Bathurst, I love. You haven't been to Orange in years. Broken Hill's beautiful. Uh, I'm one of those people who actually has done a decent amount of outback travel in my in my last few years. A young bloke, and we kind of every winter tend to go to bush in some direction, normally uh, west or north or northwest, somewhere somewhere around that sort of range from from where we are now. Uh, so I agree, there are some beautiful places out there, and more people should live there. I'd happily live there um, again if I was allowed to. Um, I also think your point about scale is true. Uh, we know that there's under underinvestment in some of these places just because you can't, at least purely economically, and that shouldn't be the only decision we make. Fund, you know, major medical infrastructure in um, I don't know, pick a state, Burke in New South Wales, right? We can't we can't put uh, major teaching hospitals in the Flinders Ranges in South Australia or in or in Kalgoorlie. Uh, There's not the people there and the, and the resources there. Now we could we could choose to just overinvest in those things, and we could absolutely do it. Uh, but the volume of, of you know, uh, cases or, or, or use of any of these assets just won't be there to, to make it a reasonably, you know, decent ROI for, for returns on that. So you're absolutely right about the size of some of those places. I do worry a little bit about, and this kind of goes to your big Australia thing we talked about on Friday, Ram. Mm-hmm. I do worry a little bit about the ability of some of our inland cities to absorb sufficient numbers of people, particularly thinking about environmental concerns and water specifically. Water. Um, mm. I don't know how much, I don't know how many more people you can put in Tamworth or, or Broken Hill. Um, and at some point, the infrastructure... My, 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 okay. I just uh, we, we lived a bit out of town there. Mm. My folks moved for water considerations. Dad yeah. was just sick of not having any. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's a big one. And I think we need to be a little bit careful of, you know, big, big continent, but not a lot of it's particularly arable or, uh, you know, has sufficient water. Um, the other thing I'm going to add one thought to yours, Ram, on, on infrastructure. Again, just to be a little bit, um, add some, hopefully some, some value. Um, not that I disagree with you or Andy, but there's, there's a bit of a cargo cult around infrastructure, which I don't love. And it's just that idea that, as you said, mate, and this is the devil's in the detail. Done well, you're 100% right. Done well, infrastructure is deflationary. Done well, infrastructure adds to productivity. Done well, it adds to GDP. Done well, it adds to people's standard of living. Those things are all 100% true by definition. The problem is that uh, let, let's say you want to say you've got a, a great road between, I don't know, Sydney and Tamworth, somewhere. And someone says, you know what we should do? We should make it a four-lane highway, dual carriageway, put bridges over some of the big rivers. And then you say, well, there you go. That's, that's improved travel times by 10 minutes. Now, if you've spent a couple of billion dollars on that, uh, I am still not convinced that the infrastructure investment has a positive ROI. It might be nice. People might like it. They might be happy it's been done. Um, does it ever really pay for itself in an ROI perspective? I don't know that it does. Um, so, you know, fixing the roads, absolutely. Yes. You can even argue making them safer is just better for people, better standard of living. I don't disagree with that either. And if you want to measure ROI in more than economic terms, then you can absolutely make that point. I would suspect that a lot of regional infrastructure doesn't have a positive cash ROI. Um, for the reason I just said, you don't have that many people to use them. You might want to do them. People might like them. It might be the right thing to do. I'm not entirely sure. The last one on infrastructure investment being inflationary, um, I think that it. I, I think it's inescapably inflationary. Sorry, let me be clearer. Inescapably puts upward pressure on inflation uh, at the point in time which the work is done. Uh, it's inflation over the long term, Ram, which was your point, which is you know you make things cheaper, easier, faster. That lowers the cost of getting goods to, to market, workers to work sites, all that stuff. It's all true. In the event, though, the, the, the work being done right now on infrastructure, if it wasn't done, 
there'll be less demand in the economy, it would be less inflationary to have it cancelled right now. It may still be worthwhile getting over the hump of inflationary pressures to get that deflation eventually, but you've got to be a little bit careful because the timing of this stuff matters. The time to do these sorts of big things might actually be in 12 months' time when the economy needs a boost. If unemployment goes from three and a half to four and a half percent, yeah, whack a couple of inflation, whack a couple of infrastructure projects in, get that inflation, uh, that unemployment back down. So timing really, really matters when it comes to this stuff. So I think it is. I still, I still disagree with you, Andy. I think it is inflationary now, particularly because the economy is so tight. There's so much what I call capacity constraints. Now is not the time to be adding more work. But there is a time and a place for that to happen. And as Ram says, there are definite long-term benefits of doing just that. Yep. <clears throat> Any other thoughts on what I said, mate? It's it's complicated. I mean, it's just yeah. it's easy to get it's easy to get cynical yeah. um, because there's nothing like as a poly putting a hard hat and a high vis vest on, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and standing in front of a big bit of equipment and saying, "Look yeah, how many yeah. jobs we're I creating." I did this, and, correct, correct? Yeah, you know, and look and look how much it's going to boost yeah. future productivity and the rest of it. The, the trouble with it is, is that yeah. as beneficial as good investment is, uh, malinvestment is is equally damaging, you know, this is on the other side of things, like just phenomenally damaging. We've got to remember Mm -hmm. there is, we live in a finite world (laughs) and, you know, effort and energy and expense over here obviously can't be in two places at once. Mm -hmm. And if you're, if you're, you know, decide that we want to build a, you know, 100, um, Let's say Albanese decides in the middle of Australia, I'm going to build a 100-foot concrete statue of myself and I'm going to coat it in gold. <laughs> now, it's going to cost a huge amount of work. A lot of, lot of you know, people will I've, be employed. I've seen, I've seen a restriction. The big elbow. There's the big, <laughs> the big banana. Elbow. There's the big merino. I've seen the big yeah. elbow. That, 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 yeah. could, that could have legs. Someone's going to do that. You know that, don't you? No, all of those builders, all of that material is not being used <laughs> to alleviate the housing problem or to, to build a new road or a hospital. I mean, it's so... Wasteful. Does Think it create of jobs? Think of the yeah, tourism. I know. We don't do like there's some benefit to it. I know. Um, but yeah, that, and that's. I think that was that was the thrust of the criticism that was leveled recently. Is that the government yeah. is going hell for leather in yep. in these areas while the private sector is scrambling for reasons. We've seen construction costs blow out massively. We've seen a lot of failures in construction companies. That's on the rise too. Which is fascinating, given you would think that this should be a great time. Uh, for for you guys, but but isn't um, so. There's yeah. There's there's all of that. Um, what was the other point? I did have another point, and it's escaped me. Uh, yeah, I, I just I feel as though to the and this isn't. You've got to be careful how you say this because you get into the realm of ideology pretty quickly. But I don't know if the government is always the most efficient allocator of capital. I, my personal view, and this is just a personal view, and it gets pretty polarizing pretty quickly. But my my view is the government really needs to step in when there is market failure, you know, or there are situations where the market can't handle it itself. I, I don't think the Australian government has any business in getting into a buy now, pay later product. Like, why, why would you do that for? I don't think you've got any business in having mm-hmm. publicly produced T-shirts. Like, why? Private sector can do that much better. It's very easy, OPM, it's very easy to spend other people's money, right? Correct, hey, spot on. Name me a government project where you haven't seen insane cost blowouts and, and, and delays, yep. right? Yeah. Because look at the NDIS. Like, it's been rorted like 100 different ways. You know, it's just, it's sort of, it's, 
And I say all of this while at the same time saying that, yeah, there is a time and a place like you for, for government to make these big nation building projects. You know, the snowy hydro schemes always held up as the, the big success story. Then look how much value that thing created. That's an example of when it's done right. But when it's done wrong, it can be really, really, really damaging. And often, unfortunately, this is why I say it's, it's easy to get cynical. They're being made by people who have a very short time frame and whose benefit is measured in terms of how it directly impacts their re-election chances. <laughs> and so, uh, and it's being spent, it's being done with money that's not theirs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's easy for things to go wrong and more often than not, things do tend to go wrong. So it's, you know, we, we need to demand a very high level, high bar, I think, from um, uh, decision makers when they're spending our money. And it is our money. That's absolutely true. I think we have a fetish about building stuff I think, yeah, so it's like local manufacturing. We should build things here. Mm. So, well, actually, I'm not sure because our service economy is doing very nicely. Thank you very much. And our wages are higher than if we're a largely manufacturing country. And so if you really want people to work for less so you can say we built a thing, um, then you can kind of have that view if you want. Or do you um, want to pay more for it? Here's an Australian-made right? car. Oh, yes. fantastic. Oh, it's, it's, it's really crap. Like, it's terrible compared to what you can get from Japan. <laughs> and it costs more. Oh, but and, it, and it costs it. five times as much. <laughs> but it's made in Australia. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, can I yeah, just get the I, Toyota? I, I'm, I'm happy. Like, we should, we should support Australian industry where we can. Uh, I'm a big fan of, we've talked before about buying stuff that lasts. Uh, I'll happily buy a pair of Aaron Williams boots for two or three times what I can pay for, you know, something Please, else. Any but, day. But, yeah. but there's, a, there's, a, there's an ROI on that, which has to make sense. And I think just making stuff or doing stuff, it's the same thing with, um, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's just worth, it's worth thinking about, you know, what, what we want to make, what we want to do. Building a bridge is cool because there's a bridge there, but, you know, if it's, not a, if it's not a good ROI on the investment, as you said, Ram. Um, by the way, we also are spending infrastructure to offset other mistakes we're making. And it's kind of one of those, <laughs> you know, paying more for the Band-Aid rather than actually solving the problem in the first place is also mm-hmm. worth talking about. So mm-hmm. how much of that stuff do we need or should we need or would we need? Um, you know, speaking of water, a bit of simple water recycling, for example, I do in Israel and other places around the world, uh, rather than, you know, a brand new dam or a pumped hydro system. Water. Like, and there's reasons for energy and stuff. I don't want to get into it necessarily now, but I just yeah. I would just say there are a lot, some of the infrastructure, maybe even a lot of the infrastructure is in place because of inefficiencies in the way we live. And that's also worth thinking about because there are cheaper ways of skinning the same cat, which actually have a much, much, much better outcome than, than maybe spending billions on infrastructure. One, one quick point before we mm. move on is the one caveat I would add to to the view of, you know, we don't need to make stuff here if we can get it better and cheaper overseas. There is a security dimension to it, which yes, I acknowledge. 100%. So, you know, if ever we got into a nasty war, I would be pretty, like, it's a, you don't know what, you don't miss what you don't have until you really need it, right? Like, it's like, oh, well, we should, we should, we, we need to make some, I don't know, I was going to say tanks, but that's just really old thinking. We need to make some more drones. It's like, oh, we got all our drones from Korea. It's like, oh, can we get any more? No. Okay, well, what do we need? You know, like there are times when no, it's like it do. really yeah, pays yeah. to have some of this stuff here. And so I, I, I 100% agree, actually. I think that's, that's security, absolutely. And some degree of redundancy as well is important yes. for some of this planning stuff. Yes. We, we assume everything's going to be perfectly fine until it's not, and there's no yeah. plan B. And that's, a, that's a, always a horrible mistake. By the way, did you see? Just we, we had a break before we were chatting, and I got off. I looked at my messages. Someone's friend sent me through saying, Oh, another respiratory virus out of China. I was like, Oh my, oh my God. God. So Thank this is breaking news. It might, it might all be nothing by the time yeah. this goes to air. 
But my immediate response was, well, at least we've learned from our mistakes and we've got lots of stuff prepared because <laughs> we just had the experience of 2020, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, oh my, like we almost, we almost deserve another pandemic, don't we? Because oh, it's just like, we don't mind, do we? If there's a higher being up there, it's like, guys, I don't know, I gave you a chance, gave you a chance to prepare for this, you know? You know, my, you know, my favorite is the, we sold off all the quarantine stations for a yeah. bit of real estate profit. Oh my then, God. Then we kind of went, shit, we need some, sorry, excuse my language. We need, we, need some, we need some quarantine facilities. Let's build those. So we did. <laughs> By the time the end of the, the, the quotes pandemic, the official pandemic, Queensland government went, oh, don't do that anymore. Let's sell that off. Oh, like, what, did you, what is worked. wrong with you yeah. people? You didn't have it. Then you yeah. finally thought maybe some building in some redundancy might be useful. They're selling it off because you don't need it anymore. It's like, of course you don't need it. That's the point. You, it's therefore yeah. you do need it. That's why we have those things. Is there somewhere, yeah. is it Norway where they have the, the global seed bank? Yeah, somewhere like that. I don't Which know, is yeah. the best idea yeah, humanity has ever had. It's perfect. One of, you know, so it's up there yep. in the permafrost. We've taken seeds from every mm-hmm. um, species of plant around, you know, commercial crops importantly, but also yep. all yep. other kinds of things that may have future benefits we don't know about yet with medicine, et cetera. Yep. And like this thing does nothing but cost huge amounts of money. Yes. Like there, there's no, there is no to date zero ROI. No, no, that's not true. <laughs> right. Negative ROI yes, yes, on that. Yes, exactly. That's right. Yeah, and I, yeah. as someone who hasn't had to pay a single cent for it, <laughs> am very much in favor of, of that kind of thing yes. existing. I tell you what, I, I would be pretty happy if the government came out tomorrow and said, hey, listen, we're going to dig a giant hole under uh, Uluru. Okay, maybe that's not that's a bad idea. We're going to dig a giant hole in the middle of Australia. <laughs> yep. And we're just going to like put a bunch of capital equipment there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a whole bunch of books in case the internet goes. We're just going to like, you know, just a whole bunch of just in case kind of stuff. And if the you, government you want, turns you around, want the government department of preppiness, don't you? That's what you, you want. You want this regard to, to be preppers just a little bit, just a little bit. I'm, I'm just saying you don't, you don't need it until you need it. And I then it'd be like, oh yeah. goodness, thank, thank great. You know, we've got yeah, this. Yeah. Like, I think that's a really smart thing to do. That's why we, it's why we save some of our money, right? That's why we don't spend everything. Because if something goes wrong, yeah. you want to be able to replace the car or fix the washing machine or whatever else needs to be done. That's, it's, the, it's the very nature of what we do as a quid is putting something aside for the future in case we need it or for when we want it. Uh, yes. So it's so it's there for us. That's that's the point. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm keen about the prepper stuff, but I mean, you're not you're not you're not miles wrong, mate. That, that idea of having stuff PPE, maybe just as a yep. as a strange idea. How about we have some, enough stuff for medical professionals if there is another virus that would work. It's uh, not or, that you know, hard. Just... A few barrels of oil stuck somewhere just in case we have problems yeah. with shipping or you know just yeah. There's, the analogy here is to bring it back to more tangible personal finance kind of stuff. <laughs> other prepping <laughs> before the we prepping get way too of the deep end. <laughs> But imagine if I don't, I, we all know someone like this, right? Who's on a really good income, but has zero savings, and lives the life of Riley, and it's just dumb because it, it, it's it's fine yeah. until it's not. Yes, correct. And, the, and like you lose your job, and now you've got the payment on the Beamer and this, and then your mortgage, and like everything unwinds incredibly quickly mm-hmm. for just the general. You know, I was I was whinging to you off air before that, you know, we had an oil leak in our car and I've had to take it mm. into the shop and it's cost whatever many thousands of dollars. You know, it just sucks, right? Mm-hmm. But but I'm fortunate in the sense that I've got some savings that I can dip into that. We know statistically, I, I forget what it is, but some in depressingly high percentage huge, of yeah. people are, are paycheck to paycheck. And a lot of people in that situation are not not because they're reckless, by the way. They're, they're, they're there because of yes. they're, they're not they're not paid very well and in cost of living and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. But 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 it's it's the same point, I guess, that we're trying to make just at the nation state sort of level. It's it's the exact same kind of principle of 
preparing for the rainy day. And I know the bean counters can look at it and go, well, it says, where's the ROI on this? There is no ROI. Well, there's not until there is. And that's, I guess that's the point. Million percent, mate. The fact we have not learned about redundancy from the COVID pandemic, it just drives me bananas. We should have had, we should have stockpiles of things that are stockpileable. Yep. That's the you know, what, what supply chains shut down because we ran, as you said on Friday, just in time supply chains yes. until we until we didn't, right? Where's that yep. stuff? Oh, it's over there. Can we get it? No, we can't. So it might have been nice to have some more here then. Um, that's yeah. why toilet paper got nuts. And, uh, you know, the toilet paper thing was stupid. But on the by the same token, wouldn't it have made sense to have like a couple of packs of toilet paper at home just in case you needed it at some point without having to go to the shops? Like, you know, we're so used to being able to. Yep. You and I are old, right? That helps. There was a time when shops went open on Sunday and only open half a day on Saturday. Yeah. These days, the day before Christmas, or the day before East Good Friday, the shops are busy not buying eggs. People are going, oh my God, the shops are really closed tomorrow. What do I do now? I better go and stock up. You know, again, speaking about grandparents, they did on Friday. Our grandparents would be, yeah, like, you'd have stuff in the cupboard, you have stuff in the garage, you have stuff in the house because... Everyone went want to, to the bank on rely. Friday. Right, yes, to get exactly. cash out. Exactly, for the week. For weekend. the ATM. Yeah. Yep, yep. It just it makes sense just to have have that there in case you need. If you don't need it, you'll, you'll use it eventually. You, you know, yeah. have an extra couple of cans of baked beans or, or tomato paste in the in the cupboard because if you want to make something, you don't have it. Just you do that. And you replace it next time. Rather than if I don't, you know, if I, if, I, if I have a problem, what am I going to do? I've got no food in the house, and the shops are closed. Now what do I do? Yeah. Um, it's yeah, I, yeah. I completely agree. It's it's madness. It, it's madness economically. It's madness. Uh, it's madness economically. That, yep. That's the that's the, that's yep. the point I was just going to make too. So again, I spoke to a CEO recently with with um, Strawman. They have they have what you could call a lazy balance sheet. Mm-hmm. It's too mm-hmm. much cash there, not doing anything. You know, it's just getting you know whatever interest rate they manage to get from their bank, which is nothing. Um, yep. And they always have done it this way. And and you know what? Like any company, there are times when you you know the cycle turns mm-hmm. and business isn't great, but the point was was that actually for them it is not not because they enjoy the lower volumes and the lower sales, mm. but all of their competitors who have got no resilience yes, there correct. Correct. go yes, to the exactly. wall, and get in exactly. trouble. Yes, yes, right. They get to 100%. buy up their competitors for cents mm-hmm. on the dollar. Yep, they get <laughs> to endure. They don't and have do. to fire their yeah. ta- their best talent. Right, yep. like so we spent twenty years training this this person up, and they're an incredible resource. And, I, and I'm not. No, I'm, going to give them a pay rise and make sure they're looked after. Mm-hmm. I mean, all this stuff that makes no sense in the moment until it does. And then yep. when, you know, the proverbial hits the fan, it's just sort of like, oh, this is, this is long-term, this is wonderful for us. Mm-hmm. This is yeah, really, yeah, really, really yeah. wonderful. And and we it's prepared. hard, I think, for yeah. the market to, to, to see this. The other point that they made as well is that, and this is, I've made this a few times, but it bears repeating this point, which is that, Companies that have a big uh, jump in revenue and sales and profitability, generally speaking, that hasn't come from nowhere. They didn't just arrive one day on on the door. It happened because in years previous, they invested in greater capacity. They invested in brand and marketing. They invested in resources so that they could deliver when when the demand sort of came. Um, There's an interesting, I I don't know what, to think of this yet. I'm still trying to work it out. But there's a company called Point Terror. It's a fascinating story. I could go on about it for ages. But they had a shocker year. They went from, you know, they went from four cents to 90 cents back to like four or five cents, whatever they are now. And what happened was they 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 had all this, what they thought was all this massive amount of work about to come through. And these big 
uh, US-based utilities just all delayed all their work. They, they had contracts with Amazon to do stuff with their warehouses. Right, yeah. So, nah, we've just gone through a redundancy. We're not going to do it now. Mm. So they, they bulked up all of their costs. They did everything that you would, ex you would want them to kind of do under that expectation. Now, again, I'm, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to be too favorable here because may, maybe this is all just the, the CEO making the right noises. So, <laughs> so you've got to be, you've got yeah. to be careful of, of yeah. being told what you want to hear, but, devil's advocate there's there is something to be said with that view is and and like i speak to some investors and they are just ruthlessly critical like they did this and they're hopeless and they should go and they screwed us all over it's like well, did they maybe they did maybe in the fullness of time we'll be having a conversation yeah it turned out they were full of hot air that was never there it was never going to happen and everyone's lost all their money so that, that i don't Please don't at me on Twitter. Please. <laughs> please don't. That's Sage um, underscore Simi. No. Yeah. <laughs> you already see it. Guys. There's, a lot of, there's a lot of emotions when it comes to point there is. There is. But my point is, it, it, benefit of the doubt here, yeah. that, is a, that is an entirely plausible story. And what there is a parallel universe out there where all of that work came through and they didn't invest in the resources to deliver when, when that was there. And in which case the market is screaming at them saying, you idiots. Now your competitors are taking all of this market share. Yes. Why didn't you bulk up when you had the chance? Why didn't you put in the resources to, to, to do these, uh, to deliver on, on, on these contracts? So anyway, it's, there is, the only point here being is, is, is that, you know, we live in a wild, wacky, unpredictable universe and it just, it pays to have a little bit of buffer around the systems that we build. Anything times zero is zero. Yes. It makes no sense to, to risk that zero rolling up. Yeah. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Hey, let's go to a question from Chris. Says, Hi, Scott and Andrew. Thank you for all the great advice you both give out each week. Following your share advisor guidance, Scott, I've achieved a 6% return over the ASX 200 over the last six months. Looking forward to many years of continued success going forward. Um, nice Chris, one. thank you. Uh, I would say- I was going to say 6% return. I'm like, mm. hey, I'm hey, like, hey, hey, hey. Um, <laughs> I, I will, I will, I will. Low I will bar. Say, I will say six months is uh, not necessarily indicative in either direction. I hope it continues to do well. Uh, if the dust may have been terrible or wonderful, I would say the same things, which is it's a long term that counts, mate. So we'll keep doing our best, uh, but don't judge me either way over the last six months. Also, by the way, if you're doing well so far, don't assume it's always going to be this good because uh, things come in waves. So just be, be careful of that. Uh, I'm just starting to build a small cap portfolio, says Chris, following Andrew's advice slash suggestions, and I'm confident this will further grow my portfolio. I'm very comfortable with the philosophy and investment strategy for stocks, but I cannot say the same for bonds. I understand the technicalities of fixed interest or bond investing and their role in a balanced portfolio. The fact that it can be an offensive hedge or a compliment to your stock portfolio, I agree. I feel that I should and will use bonds. If not now, then at some stage in the future. But I have no confidence in picking some to invest in. With your help and guidance, I can now look at a company's financials and see from the consistent revenue or profit growth, the gross margin, return on equity, cash flows, etc., whether this is a good investment or not. With fixed interest, I cannot do the same. Many bond providers have very large minimums and the return on bond ETFs are abysmal over the last three years. I have much of my spare cash sitting in term deposits getting 4.85%. He says for only three months, so almost at call. So why get into bonds for the same or less? I am prepared to invest time and effort to learn the nuances of fixed interest investing as I feel it will have its place going forward. 
besides listening to some podcasts and reading online, can you provide any advice or guidance on how I overcome this challenge? We will have many more foolish times together, methinks. Regards, Chris. Wow. What's your advice, mate, for someone looking for fixed interest bond investing? Yeah. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> I think. I'm not sure I can spell that. How do I spell it? Yeah. Is that, yeah. that M Y A H or something? Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, it's, a, it's a big thing in the US, more in the US, yeah. uh, you know, the 60 40 idea of a portfolio 60% equities, 40% fixed interest. One zigs when the other zags. I think it just guarantees yourself mediocrity over the long term, frankly. <laughs> Yeah. I'll, I, you know, we, a, a very nice listener once sent us some T-shirts that said, "I'd rather stay in growth and live with the volatility." <laughs> yes, yes. You know, which, which, yeah. which is, which is true. So it's like there's all this stuff you can do, which will smooth things out, but the cost there is is lower returns. And I also think with it depends on who's issuing the bonds. Mm. A bond is just an IOU, right? So it's yep. not it's not complicated. Yeah, yep. it's so super easy. Yep, but. But it's also diabolically hard. It's it's super easy in the sense that it's it's you know an IOU with some coupon payments along the way. Yep. But it's it's super complicated because it's only as good as the person who's making the promise. So you got junk bonds. So maybe you can go buy some bonds from Argentina if you want. They got a new president, Bitcoiner actually. So there you go. Um, <laughs> but you you can you can you can do that. Um, no, I wouldn't. Interest rate will be super high. Mm. That seems attractive. Why am I investing in an Australian government bond when I get an Argentinian bond that's paying forty percent? Like you know, so so you so the counterparty matters, and it, and it matters a lot. And just just sorry, just for our listeners, the the implication Andrew is making is that you will get a higher rate of return for Argentina, but they're likely or possibly going to default on that bond and not give you money back at all. So sorry, I, know, I know you you implied that. I just wanted for listeners who maybe aren't following um, a higher yield bond, a junk bond. They have higher yields because they're much, much, much riskier, and you have to be mindful of that. You, you need if Argentina poor. I'm sorry, this isn't a go at anyone at uh, the country or anyone from Argentinian background. Just just the decades of corrupt leadership that they have suffered under, um, and and a pretty and, creaky economy as a result. Yeah, did you know? A hundred years ago, Argentina was the richest country mm-hmm. in the world. Yes. Yeah, you know, there is a saying. It's an older one from probably our parents' generation, but as rich as an Argentinian. Really. Yeah, I had never heard, heard that, that before. No, I've, I I had heard it recently and, and looked wow. it up. Yeah, it's it's because it, because in the day it made a lot of sense because anyone from Argentina was really 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 rich. Lots of natural resources. Um, they had a they had um, just less corruption and, and better institutions, <laughs> and that that all got taken yeah. away. That's a whole other story in and of in of itself. But I'll make this point: they won't default. They can't default. It's their own money. You can't default on. If I create my own money, I can't default on it. So the default happens because of inflation. So you'll get your nominal value back. It's just that the purchasing power of that money will be worthless, right? So that's that's why they they will default. And if they're so paying the, you in pesos, Argentinian pesos, and the exchange rate moves because of that, even yep. if you get those pesos in Australia, the value of those pesos per Australian dollar will possibly be meaningfully less. Or even if you're even if you're in in the country, it's sort of yes. like, well, okay, I've still got the the, the, the notional amount of pesos that I expected. It's just that I can't, you know, what what used yeah. to cost, you know, ten. Pe- I don't know, my, this is all over the place, but you know, ten pesos for a loaf of bread is now two hundred pesos, yeah. right? So I was like, okay, so I really, and what that's what matters, right? Is the is the purchasing power? So there's that, um, but where it gets harder is, and it's not something you have to worry too much about. Let's say it is the Australian government, and let's say that we can trust them to to pay it back and for inflation not to be a major problem. Some people have an issue with that, but let's just go with that for the, for the moment. <laughs> um, 
what if interest rates change radically? Mm. Well, again, if I'm holding it to maturity, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. But if this is, this is how we had this huge, we had the second biggest banking failure in the US earlier on this year. It's kind of just got swept under the rug. It's, it's, something's, something's brewing there, but that's a whole other uh, conversation. But what happened to all those banks? Why did the Fed and Treasury have to step in with all these emergency measures? They had to step in because all of these banks had excess deposits. They bought bonds, 30-year bonds and 10-year bonds, and the interest rates went up. Now, when interest rates go up, bond values go down down. It's just the way that the, the maths works. Why am I going on the secondary market? So not the issuing body here, but the person who already holds. I, I, I'm, I'm going to start again. You've issued a bond. It pays yep. 5% rate of interest. It's a $100 bond and yes. you know you, you pay me $5, five year. Yep. every year. It's not, nice and easy. All of a sudden, interest rates that I can get at the Fed or elsewhere jump to 10%. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and now I want to sell my bond. Now, who's going to buy that bond off me at par? Who's going to buy that bond at $100? Like, well, I'm only going to get $5, i.e. a 5% return. I can just go and invest in this new issue over here and get 10%. So to account for that difference, I need to sell it at 50 bucks. So, so in other the words- the buyer gets a 10% return. So that's right. They're getting five. They're still getting the five. The, the coupon is set in stone. It's contractual, right? That, I say coupon, the interest payment effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me to get 10%, I need to pay a much lower price. And then, mm-hmm. and then- the, the carrying value of these loans, well, that's another story, but the, the real value of what they were holding dropped substantially in yep. price. So again, these are called risk-free assets. These were US treasuries, mm-hmm. right? Risk-free as so-called. Well, they're not. Not in this instance, not when dealing with very long-dated bonds when there are very fast rates of interest rate changes. And that's why I say they're both super, super, super easy and yet diabolically hard because if you are going to be any fixed rate any kind of fixed rate investor, and you are going to have any kind of reasonable time frame there. You know, you're not just buying very, very short dated bits of paper. Uh, you are at the whim of of the random global changes in interest rates, and that that can have a massive, massive, massive impact. As a lot of as a lot of big, supposedly smart, sophisticated investors are, are now finding out. So it's it's not risk free. So I'll, I'll make that point, and I agree. Why why on why on God's green earth am I going to buy some of these these IOUs when I can stick it in a term deposit for effectively the same kind of risk for a better return? I suspect there's a whole other conversation, but I, I part of my reason that I think interest rates will be lo- higher for longer is because the U.S. is increasingly having to offer higher that for the for the U.S. to fund its very substantial deficit. It was able to do so for ages very cheaply because it was a global reserve and is the global reserve currency. As the now the US is not going to default, but inflation is still a bit of a problem there and potentially could could last there. The the, the market, the free market, is saying I don't want to buy those bonds at that rate. In which case, to meet to clear those to clear the inventory, the issuer Treasury has to actually say, okay, well we'll give you a higher interest, a lower price, and therefore a higher interest rate. Um, that's going to be something to watch over the next decade or two, I feel. Mm. I, know, I know I would be very nervous lending a government that is structurally and significantly in deficit money for 30 years, like with no hope of getting back to any kind of fiscal responsibility. I, I'd, I'd be extraordinarily nervous in doing that. And the kind of people who play in these global bond markets aren't, as, aren't that dumb. And I, I feel as though at a point they'll just go, well, I will lend you the money, right? But you need to you need to pony up more dough. 
There's a lot in that, mate. There's a lot. Um, there's a lot in that. Sorry. I'm, I'm going. I'm going to quickly. I, I think you've you nailed it. I'm going to. I'm just going to cover the risk-free bit, mate, because I think I, I, I'm going to disagree with you, but also agree with you and explain thinking that hopefully you help our listeners understand a bit better. Um, so first thing I'll say is I agree with you completely. I wouldn't buy bonds. I see no value in doing it other than for volatility protection, and that's real if that's what you want, right? So, mm-hmm. so you know, you made the point about the, the t-shirt. Um, if you don't want volatility, then bonds make sense as part of a portfolio because it, it, it reduces the volatility of the average portfolio. You'll pay for that with lower total returns, so careful what you wish for. But for some people, they might be like, I, I just can't do 40% falls every five years. Yeah. And I, I, I just ca- I can't do that, so I need to protect myself from that. And if that's bonds, then then fine. Uh, by the way, it could be cash in the bank or anything else, but you know, if, if, it's, if it's bonds, then fine. So, so I get why people might want to think about that. In terms of the risk-free thing, I'm going to disagree with you, but then come around to agree with you. So give me a bit of rope here. Okay. Um, in my mind, the bond is entirely risk-free because you don't have to sell it on the secondary market. Yep. So if you want to sell it, you might lose half your capital in your example. Great example. Mm. Well, geez, I mean, if, if I'm losing half my capital, that sounds pretty crap. Except yep. if you hold it to maturity, you get all of your capital back, plus you get the coupon or the interest payments during yep. the period. And let's let's leave default out of it. It's not risk-free because there is a chance of default, but as you say, if you're issuing your own currency, the money it's, if they don't right, have it, right. Yeah. So, so it's risk-free in that sense that you will get your money back you will get your, your your interest payments. It'll be completely fine. So so I, I, I disagree that's that's not risk-free, except where I agree with you, and this is why I want to bring it full circle, is there's two elements of risk that still are involved in that process. The first is, to Ram's point, if they print money, then the real value of the bond falls, even if the nominal value, you get 100 bucks back, mm. But in a year's time or 10 years' time, 100 bucks is worth $25 because they've printed so much money and inflation has been so high. It's the Argentinian. The Right, Problem. exactly. Yep. So in nominal terms, it's risk-free. In absolute terms, you, you are always going to fight against inflation. Yeah. The other reason why it's not risk-free, and this is a little bit more detailed, but not much, is why, you know, when Andrew was talking, then you might have thought, well, hang on, why would you, if you, if you had to sell it for 50, why, wouldn't you, why would you just not keep it for 100? Well, mm-hmm. firstly, you might need the money. So you take yes. a duration risk anytime you, you know, if you need to sell that, the great thing, you can't sell a term deposit. You can redeem it, you get most of your money back, maybe with a penalty, maybe without. Bond, you can sell it generally as long as it's a willing buyer. You've got to agree to the price, but as long as it's a willing buyer, you can sell it. So it's a nice instrument to be able to sell a bit like shares when you want to, generally, and you can you can you close out the, the trade in a couple of days to so get the money pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So that kind of works. The, the, the risk bit here is twofold. The first is, um, if you need to sell it, as I said, that duration risk. The other thing is there's an opportunity cost, which is a co- which is a form of risk. If you yep. can get 10% elsewhere, but you're stuck with your 5% bond because mm. you've mm. chosen to invest in a 10-year bond at 5%, yep. you, you get your 5%, maybe that's okay, maybe you're happy with that, but a little bit mm. like owning bonds in the first place for volatility protection, you can you can secure that capital at, at 100 bucks in, in 10 years' time, but in the meantime, you could be yourself investing at 10% returns if you had a different asset. But yep. by holding a fixed-term asset at a lower interest rate, you're costing yourself the ability to invest at higher rates of return if interest rates do move. Now, is that and, risk? On one level, no, because you, you're not losing your capital. But the ability or the, the, the cost of not being able to chase a higher return is a very real financial impediment. And you may, halfway through the story, feel that things are going to get worse. Yes, that's the other thing. So it's, so it's sort of like, okay, I've lost like... I only lose if I sell, but I'm not going to yep. sell. Yep. Um, actually, I think interest rates are going to go even further, which means my bonds will go down even lower. Uh, yep. You know, so so it's not a, there's a sunk cost or there's a there's a there's a, there's already a sort of a loss there, but it it it, it may be that you expect the loss to get worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. So it's 
Yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, I we I, I I cannot believe that governments, big, major Western governments, <laughs> were issuing thirty-year. I think yeah. was it the eurozone that had a hundred-year bond or something? Sounds likely. Yeah, about at zero percent. Like, I think I think even Apple did thirty-year bonds at like one percent. Something ridiculous. Like just you know. bravo. <laughs> Yeah, Bravo! Exactly. Yeah, right. You found a counterparty. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just, yeah. you know, I, I just get on my knees yeah. and I and I, I bow to you. <laughs> that is, that is brilliant. Yeah. Like yeah. I would, if anyone. By the way, anyone listening out there wants to lend me money for a hundred years <laughs> at two percent, right. yeah. I will take it. Let's talk, right? I, I will, I will very happily sort of take that. And you kind of think, who's dumb enough to do that? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Just pension funds and mm -hmm. massive sovereign wealth funds. And huge, like big, smart money. This is how crazy the world got there for a, for a time. So it kind of blows my mind a, a, a little bit. And the they did, is, by the way, because they wanted to have that security or certainty of capital in, in, a, in a volatile world where shares seen as a riskier asset because the price can fall. I mean, the reality is we, we, we prefer shares because there's more upside. The reality is there is also downside risk, right? So, you know, the bond, you'll get your hundred bucks back. And even after inflation, that might suck because it might be worth 50 or 30 or something. Yeah. If the company you buy, the shares go nowhere or fall, and then inflation does it, you could still be worse off owning shares, the wrong shares, or even just shares in general if the market falls. So we don't want to portray bonds as a risky asset where shares are really safe and, and reasonable. Oh, yes, yes. What we're saying is the upside potential for well-chosen shares, we think makes it a, a much, much better risk-reward proposition than bonds. But we also we don't want to pretend that only bonds can lose money in that scenario. Oh, that's a very shares good point. can too. Oh, so we 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 often sing the praises of Howard Marks. He's a really mm -hmm. great investor. I sign up to Oak Tree the memo the memos that he does. Yep. They're free. They're brilliant. They're all great. Excellent. Well, well worth reading. Uh, he's a bond market investor. Mm. He invests a lot in junk bonds and the rest and of it. Yeah, yeah, distress bonds, right? Yeah, companies that are yeah. You know, teetering. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 but it's it's not. He's not. They're buying it because they've got a view. A macro view, essentially, on on these things and what what's going. So it's on one hand, it sounds really vanilla and boring. On the other hand, they've delivered incredible returns for their shareholders by sort of predicting which ways the economic macro winds are going to blow, and and realizing that 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 markets are offering uh, you know dollars for pennies kind of thing. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's it, it's it's an excellent it's an excellent point you make, and there's there's always exceptions to all. But I'll I'll put a bow on it. I think for the average quote unquote retail investor, <laughs> there's not much. Don't don't feel as though you should because diversification or because right. volatility or something like that. You know, it's like we often have fun with the idea that, oh, you should have exposure to gold and retail and the, should you? Why? Who said? Yeah. Who said that I need exposure to these kinds of things, right? And I feel as there's too much stuff that's just pure, just indoctrination, really. That's it's like you, you should because you should because that's the way it's always been done. I, people I, say I, you should, so I guess it makes – and it, 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 yeah. it's, it's a more insidious than that, mate, actually, because it's a, it's a really easy – um, I don't think people are necessarily doing it deliberately, but diversification is good, right? Yes. Yeah. So more diversification must be better then. Yes. Yeah. So then if I buy bonds, I'm more diversified, aren't I? Yes. So therefore, I should buy bonds then. Yes. So, well, hang on. No, that 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 yeah. series of statements that seems to follow yeah. doesn't mean you should buy Beanie Babies and Yo-Yos and baseball trading cards because, well, what about, I don't know, wine? I don't own any art. Maybe I should own some art because I should be diversified. Yep. Maybe I should own, you know, at some point there is diversification and then there is just silliness. And I think, I'm not saying bond buyers are silly necessarily. What I am saying is don't, don't 
follow that logic all the way through. Otherwise, you never stop. You know, yes. unless you're in one of everything in the world, you're not truly diversified. You could always be more diversified, couldn't I? Well, I'll do that then. Um, it seems to make sense. It was born out of, I think, mate, some reasonableness around volatility. I think most yeah. old school financial advisors were of the view that that 60-40 portfolio or the bond should be, was it 100 minus your age or something, should be a bond allocation. Whatever yeah, I that's right. Yeah. But just, and it makes some, if you've got, if you've got nervous clients who are going to freak out. My mum has said to me years ago now, but my, my super went down. It's not supposed to go down, is it? And it was a really, a really innocent question where it's like, well, I thought super was supposed to go up over time and now I've lost money over the last 12 months. What the hell's going on? Mm. Um, not her words, mine. Um, paraphrasing. Mm. But you know, it's not, it's not an unreasonable question. There are people out there who need to be given lower volatility products or, or solutions because they just don't have the temperament to deal with volatility. Completely appropriate. Yeah. But that's yeah, yeah, what no, it's for, no, not for maximizing your returns. But there's a compromise. Just yes, there's no free right. lunch. You know? yeah. Like any any benefit that you get from a certain financial product, that comes mm -hmm. at, at at the expense of something else. 100%. Yeah. Oh man, it's 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 really. I mean, the the other the other type of bond we. Oh gosh, we're well over time, but I'll just <laughs> I'll finish this because it's fascinating <laughs> bonds. Um, the the there's sovereign bonds, but there's corporate bonds as well. Yes. So the CBA Hence the Apple ones we talked about. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They they can be. They, they can be very interesting too. The other, and before someone writes in and, and, and um, <laughs> complains we didn't mention this, is that if a company gets into trouble, mm -hmm. bondholders rank ahead of equity holders. Correct. Uh, although that's pretty, you know, you want to hope that there's a hell of a lot of net assets there to sort of make it good because generally speaking, no one's going to get much of anything. It's going to be a bad experience for all. But 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 as a, as a common shareholder, you're the last person in the queue for whatever is left over after the administrators have come in and tried to fix everything up. Mm -hmm. you're, you're probably not going to get much at all. Bondholders will rank ahead of you. So let me just quickly put some detail on that, mate, very quickly. Uh, when a company's administrator or liquidator is called in and take over a bankrupt company, there are rules that apply to how they distribute whatever assets are left over. Yep. So the, the liquidator says, right, I've taken over uh, Phillips Enterprises. Uh, it's gone broke or it's, it's insolvent, so I can't keep yeah. trading. But it's got some land, it's got a couple of buildings, it's got some inventory, it's got, some, it's got a little bit of cash in the bank. Uh, I'm either I'll try and sell the business to someone else and get some money back yep. and, and distribute that money or sell off all the assets, shut the whole thing down and return the money to the stakeholders. Yes. And in that context, there is an order. Generally speaking, employee entitlements, at least legislative ones, come first. Yep. After that, what they're called secured debt holders. So mm -hmm. secured is like a mortgage is a security over your house. So it's, it's, it's tied to an asset, generally speaking, or to the assets of a company. Then unsecured creditors. So think about a personal loan where you haven't get, pledged the car as, as collateral. Uh, that's an unsecured loan. After that are the owners of the company. So when all the company's debts have been paid, mm. almost never are, by the way. There's almost certainly nothing left. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 the debt holders get first go, and then the equity holders, the shareholders, gets what's left. That's why share investing is considered more risky than bonds generally it speaking is. from yeah. that perspective because you are you are a lower um you're lower on the on the credit totem pole before you rush out and, and fill your boots with commercial bonds though <laughs> again yes, yes, there's a yes. compromise here yes. and the compromise is this let's say i buy some corporate bonds from a company and let's say that company happens to be the next apple and between now and 2033 it like its profit just goes to the moon well, guess what you get as a bondholder? You get exactly what you signed up <laughs> yes, for on day one. Right. There is no upside beyond what was what was contracted for. That's right. So, so you go, oh, it's safer and, and there's less yeah. downside. And if anything yes. gets into trouble, I'll get more money back than shit. Well, A, you're still going to, 
you're still going to not be in a good place. Yep. And, and B, just remember, it comes at a cost. And the cost is you don't get any of the upside either. Correct, correct. I think we've done that well and truly to death. The three people who are still listening to find out more about bonds have been totally sated in their desires to understand more about the murky world of fixed interest investing. Everyone else left a very, very long time ago. Uh, mate, thank you for your uh, sharing your knowledge today. Really, we've seen a whole lot of different topics. Right? I really love the great questions, everything great from questions. Outback Australia through the bond investing and everything in between. So uh, thank you very much for all those who asked those questions. We are going to, in the next little while, start recording some Christmas episodes. We are going to our level yes. best to deliver to you episodes right through Christmas and New Year as we try and do every every year. I've said before, we've only ever missed one episode. That was when I was in hospital crook. Um, un unplanned. Yeah, I know, Weak. exactly. Well, to be fair, I had a bloody respirator in my head. It was going to be hard to use a microphone, uh, but that's no, my no, I'm problem. Saying some, some, no, people, yeah. some people, you know, when they are called upon, <laughs> stand and deliver. Others others take hide, the easy Hide time. behind excuses. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but we, we always do try and get through Christmas, so we will try and pre-record them. What that means is we need questions. So if you have questions for the mailbag, by the way, another one, another quick thought. If you have ideas, suggestions yeah, about topics we can cover mm -hmm. uh, in our regular episodes, we normally kind of make Fridays a bit newsy or at least news kind of, you know, generated. We kind of tend to rant and discuss other stuff, but it tends to come from the, the events of the week. If there are things you want us to talk about, which maybe aren't direct questions, but topic ideas for those pre-recorded episodes, particularly the Friday ones, please let us know as well. Info, I-N-F-O at fool.com.au. By the way, if you gave up, not listening to the Bond answer, you miss this bit. So you don't get a chance. So the benefit of listening, of hanging around till the very, very end is you get to find out what's happening. Info at fool.com.au. Hit me up on Twitter at TMFScottP. That's also my Instagram handle. Uh, you can get Ram at Sage underscore Simeon and at Strawman Invest. And you can follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scott Phillips Money. As always, be careful of imitators and spammers and scammers because they will try and do that. So make sure you look up the actual addresses the actual I just handles. say it right now, we'll never sell you anything on on those platforms. Correct. <laughs> and we're, and not, no we're, not, we're not DMing no... random yeah. people. Yeah, so. We're not reaching out to say hello. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. If, if, if you hear from me, if I slide in, slide into your DMs, as the cool kids say, <laughs> and I'm offering you a uh, my my trading course or something like that, like run uh -huh. a mile. <laughs> yeah. I had someone try and sell me something they made 100% in a month the other day. On, I was like, you don't know who I am, do you? It's a, it's a, it's a pretty mm -hmm. funny one. Anyway, all that said, thank you for listening. Thanks for spending some time with us. Have a great Sunday. And until Friday afternoon, full on. See you later. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691.